Hello, I am Anna Hacker from Australian Unity, and this is the first episode of season two of the podcast, What Happens When I Die. It's a podcast that will get you thinking about what happens after you die. Sounds morbid, right? As a lawyer, my experience has shown most of us are unprepared. Throughout this series, I'll be joined by a variety of experts, and we will be exploring what happens to your business, wealth, kids, things, and even your body. So today we have Jessie Williams from the Groundswell Project joining us. We're so excited to have Jessie here with us. She's someone who was certainly an early supporter of this podcast. Um, the, the, the really encouraging words that she posted on LinkedIn when we were in two minds about whether to release a podcast about death during a pandemic really just showed that there is a real need to have these sorts of conversations. And that's why we were so excited in season two to be able to invite Jessie onto the program and actually have her come to talk about her, her little love child, if, if we want to call it that. <laughs> so, Let's join me, please, in welcoming Jessie Williams, who is here to have a really important conversation with us today. Fabulous. Thanks for having me, Anna. Not a problem. Now, many people, hopefully, have started to hear about your, your passion project. Um, can you please explain why, why exactly are you on a podcast about death and talking to me today? <laughs> what is it that, that sort of drew us together? Right, like I'm a 49-year-old woman and I'm well. So what the <laughs> hell am I doing talking about death? Exactly. exactly. Right. Well, look, I, so I do, I do work with an amazing organisation, you know, the Groundswell Project. We are absolutely on a mission to change the culture around death and dying because, of course, it's going to be something that we will all face. Uh, at some point in our lives, we will die. <laughs> so mm. you It's know, one of those givens, like ta- death and taxes. That's it. That's exactly right. Or as Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. So <laughs> we're, we're about bringing that, that hard, sometimes shitty, you know, certainly awkward conversation, what we call upstream. We want to talk about the stuff when we're well. Because well, that will make it different. That will help us when the time comes for, you know, for people that we love and for ourselves. So we've been doing this work for 11 years. We talk about death in all manner of places. We talk about it in workplaces. We talk about it in schools. We talk about it in community meetings. Um, and we certainly talk about it in the health system, don't we? So, yeah. Yeah. I think that the the conversation around death is something that certainly culturally there's there's certain cultures people from certain backgrounds that I know in my meetings, I actually can't mention the word death. If I do, everyone becomes embarrassed. It becomes something that it's almost like a, if you, if you say the D word, it's going to happen. So you talk about a will and an estate plan without actually talking about death. That's actually really difficult. I completely agree. It's a conversation we have to have. And I guess that's where I find um, the Groundswell Project just so um, helpful because it's actually bringing that tough conversation. Um, as you say, let's just be a half shade braver. Let's not, we don't have to go all of the way, you know, immediately. It's a tough conversation. Let's allow us though to have that ability to talk about death so that it isn't a tough conversation so that we can have those conversations when we're healthy and not leave it to the time when really if we are unwell and, and potentially, you know, unfortunately facing death as we all do we're not having to have those conversations then when we should actually just be enjoying those moments is that something that I guess you have seen change over the last few years yes and look of course as a social change person I'm going to say yes it's changing (laughs) you know 
Um, but in my eight years at Groundswell, I can genuinely say that I have seen a shift. But I think largely it's driven by the amplification of the voices of the people who have known this stuff, you know, for a long time. So, you know, when our palliative care people talk, um, speak out, when our end-of-life doulas are growing in numbers, these are non-clinical people who help us to do a good death. Um, when funeral providers start talking about, you know, other kind of more creative, radical ideas of, of hosting a funeral, the fact that 92% of Australians will have an expected death so 92% of everyone in this country will have a, a, a phase of their life, a, a short or a long phase of their life where they're alive and they'll know that their life is limited, that there's going to be a day pretty soon. So that means we've got time to mm. consider what that, you know, what that experience might be. So, um, yes, I mean, I've, you know, I would say 11 years ago um, I was a bit weird, <laughs> you know, at a Sunday barbecue when someone says, what do you do for a living? I would say, well, um, I, I run an organisation that talks about mm. uh, death a lot. Uh, and, you know, yes, they would be kind of, um, they would their eyes would go to the left. Um, I can honestly say now if I do meet new people, they lean in, they say, wow, that's fascinating, tell me more. So, yeah, there's something changing. There's definitely something changing. Um, I don't like phrases like the silver tsunami and these awful ways of describing our ageing population. Um, but, of course, um, we have a, a massively ageing population and um, people in their twilight years are now dying in larger numbers. And so there is actually more death around as well. So that that's probably a factor. Yeah. And certainly when you are facing it in in your life, it's something that you wish you could talk about and, and potentially have talked about it earlier. For, for you is, <laughs> you said at a barbecue when you, when you explain what you do, people used to maybe think, oh, that's a bit unusual, isn't it? I, I, I would agree, certainly in my area um, of law, it, it was something people didn't really want to talk about, but there's been a change, I would say, in the last five years where people want to know more, they have this interest. But for you, have what what led you on this path to, to wanting to make that conversation around death and, and a good death um, something that you wanted to to dedicate your life at the moment to? Yeah, look, like many people, I have a story, and um, thankfully, it's a story of triumph. And so, my story is: I had a very unexpected death um, nineteen years ago. I was expecting my first baby. And like all first pregnant women, well, most pregnant women, you you know, you share that journey with your colleagues at work and your friends, and it's all very exciting. And certainly, my journey was, um, you know, was was completely normal in every sense. But at the time of my baby's birth, he died, and so I found myself in a position of having to go back to my workplace to say, "My baby died. I'm sorry. I don't have that moment for you and that moment that I was expecting to to share." Um, the triumph for me was the manner of the grieving process and, and how my community helped me and how my colleagues at work helped me. So we were very lucky to have somebody in the hospital at the time of my, my son's death to say to me, you can take your son's body home and you mm. can take, take your time. And we did. And we had a, a three-day vigil. And all the people that I always expected were going to meet him, they actually did meet him. Um, he just wasn't alive. So now, you know, 
I remember I told somebody in a dog park that story and they got um, they got very weirded out by it. So I want to acknowledge that that's not uncomfortable for some people um, to imagine perhaps. But these vigils happen. They happen across the country. And I came out of that experience for many months and years because it was a long time ago now where I felt a lot of uh, guilt at the grief that I had exposed people to because, of course, you know, one death just can impact so many people, especially the death of a baby. Mm. Um, but it wasn't until I asked them, like, what was that like for you? And they said, I've never felt so much love. I've never felt mm. so much connection. I've never, like, it felt like a complete privilege to be in that that three-day bubble with mm. you. And so I guess that's, you know, and, and I kind of consider that like a post-traumatic growth, like we were all better for it. So, um you know, sometimes I share my story to corporate audiences as a way of just saying, like, you don't need to um, necessarily feel like it's all too hard and you have to really shy away from these moments. They can be done well. Um, and, you know, there are certain elements that, that need to be there in order for that wellness to occur. But that's what gets me out of bed every morning is the idea and the hope that people can actually feel that human connection when you lean into an extraordinary experience of loss. It's not all hard, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's so, – thank you so much, Jesse. I, I, I want to quickly pause to say thank you for sharing your story because I think it is something that you, you never know the reaction that you'll probably get and you, you hope it's full of love and and, and, and um, support and everything. And it, I'm sure it is on a level, but the the reaction of someone like in the dog park when they say they're, they're not sure how to respond, I think that that – is something that hopefully your project as well is is hoping to change. You know the that um, that that ability to to question. Well, okay, so what can I do for you? How can I be here for you? And that every reaction is also not the same because we you know might have cultural backgrounds that that's, that that show us this is how we look at death, but we also might just have our own personal. Um, experiences that that mean that we react in different ways, and that's, I guess, also important to to acknowledge. As you said, everyone doesn't react in the same way, but it's important to know that we do need to make sure that we ask the right questions, that we are there for people, and we help people through what is ultimately probably the some of the worst experiences of, of their lives, um, especially when, as you said, it involves the workplace. I, I myself have had a uh, unusual experience I guess with a death in the workplace um, we, we all have colleagues who pass away but I did unfortunately have a colleague who passed away at work in a meeting um, from a from quite a serious um, health condition and it was extremely confronting mm. and it was really admirable how the business that I worked in um, faced that because faced it is probably the wrong word but but helped the team members within a few hours we had support there if you wanted to go home you could go home if you wanted to be collectively talking about it you could it wasn't a forced this is how we must react to this because everyone did react slightly differently and and we were able to also engage with the family because for them you know their loved one had passed away with us you know almost with the second family that's how often work workplaces are for for many, many of us. And it was a really, it was one, of, it was one of the most difficult things I've probably encountered at work. And I'm sure anyone who was, was there that day would probably say the same thing. It was extremely traumatic, but having a workplace that actually supported us through 
through what was happening and 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 probably didn't know how to do it but but just tried um, was actually really important and that that's another part of what your work is it's helping workplaces understand before there's the something traumatic happen how they might be able to deal with it if it does and and can you Talk a little bit, bit about how you feel workplaces are, are developing and are managing the ways that they they assist and support their employees through those sorts of events. Yeah, and thank you to to you, Anna, for sharing that experience. I'm so pleased to hear <laughs> that that mm. was, you know, the reaction to a really awful situation. And in that moment, there was community building, wasn't there? I mean, Absolutely. We yeah. we ask workplaces, you know, people at work, do you consider yourself, do you consider your workplace a community? And we get a, a lot of mixed responses. And but in general, people say, well, yes, but it's a it's a shitty one, or yes, it's a great one, you know. And it and that means that there's capacity building opportunities there um, mm. for building a better community. But look, you know, the the way we engage with workplace is very varied. It really depends on the appetite and the and the passions of the leaders, um, and 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 where we find the starting point. Um, compassion is not complicated. It's actually very very simple, and it starts with an authentic conversation. So we have many authentic conversations with leaders, and sometimes it's in response to something that's happened that there's regret. Um, or we don't want that to happen badly again. Or um, sometimes it's, yes, it's like uh, how can we build a healthy culture so that when the inevitable happens, we we have a little bit more confidence around what to do because, as you rightly know, you don't go and look at a policy manual when these mm. things happen. And so, you know, I, I, one of the when we were researching this work many years ago, one of the um, studies that I thought was really interesting was the Google project called the Aristotle project where they looked at they were looking for patterns of productivity across teams and you know Google are really good at patterns but they had too many patterns they couldn't understand them and so the key the key finding in this was teams that had the ability to have conversations with an emotive element were more productive and that's just a no-brainer isn't it like if you can talk about the hard stuff you're generally more productive and happy. Mm. So um, the ultimate hard stuff is this. Um, so, yeah, so so sometimes the way we work with people is we can do a, a compassion blueprint, which is a series of questions that um, workers and HR and managers can answer. And then with those responses, we have a very open conversation to really kind of assess a starting point. And, and the good thing about that is then it's, it's up to the people at work to decide what project they want to take on or what improvement initiative. Because some, for some workplaces, it could be a simple case of bereavement leave. You know, bereavement leave is two days in Australia, which takes longer to get over a bad haircut. It's like it's <laughs> ridiculous, right? Um, so it could be something that's like that. Or it could be something around legacy, for example. So something that really is about tapping into the meaning of life and and the things that we that we value. So, um, but I think the pro, like the 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 education program that we've got, is the thing that we're super excited about. I wonder if I could talk about oh, that absolutely. now. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Please. So it's called Ten Things to Know Before You Go, <laughs> and it's it's not a travel workshop. So it's it is about end of life, but um, but it's actually really, really fun. And he, like, so so bear with me. It's it's a two hour online workshop. It's live. There's a facilitator and there's a small group. And so what you do is you come into it, and we take you through the facts. We take you through ten provocative facts. 
um, about the whole end-of-life space. So that includes planning, that includes manner of death, that includes grief, that includes funerals, um, you know, what are the options beyond uh, cremation and, and burial? There are a lot. Um, and so we use the power of knowledge as the way to invite people into this conversation. So it's not about the existential nature of death. It's about um, information that is very, very empowering. And through that, people will come away and then they tend to say, okay, so now I've got a bit of a sense of the terrain I know what's important to me. I want this and I want that and I want this and I want it for me and I want this for my mum or this for my dad. And so it, it, it really motivates people to kind of take that next step into building their awareness. So, yeah, that's the workshop and we, we, we've been running it in the community for many years and we're bringing it into the workplace now. So we're super excited about that. I think that's it's just such an innovative way of, of talking about death because, I mean, Certainly for my podcast, I was really insistent on having um, the word die in the title. I didn't want to, let's not <laughs> flap around with, <laughs> the, you know, something existential that people won't even understand what we're talking about. It has to right, be direct. Right. You know, we yes. have to say the D word. We have to actually talk about death, um, which we do. You know, the, you, you and I both are in the business of, of death and talking about it. And um, I think that importantly for listeners, we will be having some links to, to information that you're talking about in our show notes. So if you have any other questions, please see that to, to get further information. But certainly having those discussions with family, understanding from your own perspective, what are your wishes? One of the biggest problems we see when clients come in and depends, I guess, when they're coming in. But mo recently I've been having lots of conversations with family members where there's someone who's passing away or unwell or may have been unwell for a long time. And they just say, I just don't know what they want. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to raise this because it's so confronting. And that's the difficulty of this conversation sometimes, because if you are facing death, it is a really difficult conversation to have sometimes. Sometimes people really want to have it, though it can be completely the opposite, which is why having it well in advance of time is really critical. And I think with estate planning, there's really important documents we put in place, um, much like, you know, when you're talking about putting in, you know, what's important to you, listing things and having a think about it. It's also thinking about, certainly from advanced care directives points of view, what are you, what are your decisions in regards to care? You know, what's palliative care for you? What, what's end of life looking like for you? And, and that's where there's this support system in place from, you know, people such as yourselves, from, um, you know, advisors, from, from, um, lawyers where people can be prepared and, it also involves talking, though, with family. That's definitely the most important thing. If there's a surprise at the end, um, you don't want someone reading a will to find out what your wishes for your funeral were. You need oh. to have had that conversation before. Is that something that comes up for you as well? Do you, you, that, that's a reaction. Oh, yeah, <laughs> there. it's huge. It's huge. And actually that example you gave is, a really, is one we use in the workshop too. Um, there's a dolt moment for many people. Um, but harder than that, as you rightly say, is the conflict that can happen when you're in the most stressful, awful time where you're just feeling this sorrow because, you know, this massive absence uh, in your life of this person that you love. Mm. And then on top of that, you've got all of the stress. So, yeah. yeah, like it's a, it, it, and yet, you know, people like human behavior is not really motivated by rationality, is it? <laughs> like, otherwise no. we wouldn't have wars. Um, so I think, I think this opportunity um, of these sorts of conversations and workshops is about, yeah, raising that consciousness 
Um, so, I mean, I, I think the other thing too is that dying is one of these things that you really can't do alone. Um, mm. there's, there's lots of things we can do on our own, but when it comes to dying, we really need our people. Yes. And and what I find is, especially when during Seniors Week and we do a lot of presentations with councils and things like that, is that we, we get the over 65s come along and they just, they're there to, you know, to talk about the paperwork. And we're like, oh, yeah, hold on a minute. <laughs> Who are your people? Because if you want to mm. die at home, the research says it takes on average 16 people to help one person die at home. Wow. So, you know, 70% of Australians do want to die at home. So, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think when we're talking about death literacy, which is a frame that we work with, which is about knowledge about the system, knowledge about the paperwork, but also um, self-knowledge, talking uh, skills, accessing support in your community, it's the, really the whole, whole gamut, then part of that is, is understanding who's in your like inner social network, who's in your outer social network, and then what conversations do you have with them, and then how does that relate to the paperwork? And I think to have that kind of awareness, you do need to be in a – it's good to be in a group setting where you can reflect. I think mm. the, other, the other thing too is that – you know, workplaces aren't just for the people that work there, but we are seeing a trend in terms of the wellness programs that what what leaders can offer their workers can also extend to their to the families of those workers, mm. as you mentioned with your experience. So this workshop can also be something that employee employers can put on for their staff and their staff can actually bring family members and friends to it. Mm. Um, so that's the other and that's the other kind of opportunity of building death literacy across the whole population not just putting it on one person's shoulders and, and we certainly we don't um, just have our personal lives end when we when we come to work or our work lives end when we go home there's so much crossover that it makes sense one thing that you mentioned before um, which I just some listeners may not have ever heard of this term, but a death doula. Now, you you mentioned it in a discussion right at the start. I had not heard of this term despite being in this industry and you would expect it would have come up before until I was recently on holiday. I was reading a book where the main character was a death doula and I was really drawn to the the way that um, the work was described, the interaction with um, the clients, but you obviously would have a lot more exposure to death doors. Can you maybe um, just explain what, what that role is and, and I guess what, what is this something that you think is we're going to hear a lot more of? Because I think we are. I think it's going to become yes. a much more stable, norm, normal, for want of a better word, part of, of dying. Yeah, look, I think so too. So um, there's a lot of parallels with death and with birth. Uh, not only are they the great bookends of life, <laughs> but the, the the manner is, is is actually a little bit similar. So when we think about birth, um, you know, most women will go into a hospital and they'll have uh, a midwife there and maybe an obstetrician and maybe they'll have a doula. So that person who is a non-clinically trained person but a very, very, very experienced person when it comes to birthing. It's the same in death. So death doulas or end-of-life doulas, um, there are a couple of training organisations in the country, but they're uh, primarily women, no surprise there, mm -hmm. who go through workshops and training. Um, and what they do is they cultivate their ability to hold space for the person who's dying, but also the people in that person's life. And they journey with them. So they might start working with you as a client um, at the point of a, a, a diagnosis um, or at the point, more of the pointy end. 
um, just like birth doulas do. You know, sometimes people mm. call a birth doula when they've got a, a line on a stick. So, mm. um, uh, but also they're there after the person's died so they can help with the grief and bereavement and they help navigate the system. They sometimes are the ones that make the cups of tea. They're sometimes mm. the ones that play with the kids. Um, but yeah, they're just super comfortable around death. Mm. Um, I know for me, if I was lucky enough to have, you know, one of those peaceful dying experiences where I had drugs for my pain and whatever, um, I would absolutely want to have an end-of-life doula there that I trusted um, that I have built a relationship with. These individuals um, generally are, you know, you just pay them a fee um, and you can find them on directories. So, mm. um, yeah, I think the numbers are certainly growing. Um, there's a certificate for coming out soon in end-of-life doulering um, and I just saw a TAFE actually just um, start to advertise um, a program for, for doulas. So it's a growing can, interest. Absolutely. And and, it, and certainly becoming more mainstream, I think, something we will see more of. I, I think that that's what the, these conversations around death and, and making it something that you need to share as a community uh, are going to bring to to the process because it's something, as we said at the start, it happens to everyone. We just need to have the right resources to understand how to do it um, do it well because you don't want to look back and think, "Wow, I wish we'd done it a different way." That was not a great, you know, great experience yeah. for for the person who's passed away, but also for the family. So it, that, that sort of a support is amazing, and also your your um, your project, the Groundswell project, is just so critical. I think for this conversation, um, is there anything else you want the listeners to know before? Before we finish, um, oh, this very important discussion. I'd love, I'd love. Thank you so much for the for the um, suggestion. I would love everyone to know about dying to no day. Um, so everything else has a day. We thought death needed one too, and so dying to no day is in the month of August, specifically on the eighth of August, and it's actually a national campaign that is about bringing conversations to life around death, dying, and grief. And there's between two and three hundred events across the country and these events are put on by sometimes doors um, most commonly they're put on by councils by community groups by palliative care groups um, and so we've got a website and you can come and slowly each day events are being registered now workplaces can actually hold an event for dying to know day and groundswell can help them do that it's free um, and just like, you know, the Cancer Council's morning tea, you know, you can have a conversation for Dying to Know Day in the kitchen or it can be um, a bit more of an organised event for stakeholders to come and talk about whatever topic within that realm is, is useful for you. So that's something that we'd love to talk to people about to get them on the journey. Absolutely. We will definitely be putting links into um, to, to Dying to Know Day in our show notes so that everyone has access to that and, and I I'm sure that that conversation is only just getting started. So thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us today. I'm sure the listeners had a really informative time understanding this important conversation and, and um, discussion topic. So thank you so much. And well, I can't wait to do it again sometime in the future. <laughs> Thanks so much, Anna. Take care. No worries. You too. Bye. Wow, I think we can all agree that Jessie has really given us so much to think about and particularly so on this Dying to Know Day 2021. 
I think that the idea that talking about death is something that we shouldn't do is a really outdated idea. We really need to start making it a topic of conversation. And why not? It's something that is unfortunately going to happen to all of us, but we should be able to talk about it in a way that means that when it does come to our time, we're not unprepared, we're not scared of what's in the future, and our friends and family know what our wishes are. So make sure you listen to Jesse's message and spread the word. As they say, knowledge is power, and given death is something we all need to face eventually, let's make sure our deaths and those of our loved ones are good deaths. Listeners, get out there and talk about death and dying. As always, listeners, I really want you to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with what happens when I die. Tell your friends and family because that is the way that we can spread the word of this podcast and make sure that as many people listen to it as possible. If you have any questions, please make sure that you send them in to whwid at australianunity.com.au. I'd be more than happy to read them and possibly even share them in future episodes. Thanks. (laughs) 